0: Uh, If you have your Bibles, want to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter nine. That's where we're going to be today. And if you picked it up, on it at all in the reading today. It's a doozy of a passage. It's going to be a lot of a lot of fun, a lot of lot of tensions and a lot of difficulty in this passage. And so I'm going to trek through the entire chapter for us today. And this is a fascinating passage. It's a passage. that has got a lot of writing about it. There's a lot of debates about it. There's a lot of divisions about it. There's a lot of articles. There's not a whole lot of preaching about it. I figured out right in a lot of research and stuff. I realized this is a section that pastors a lot of times like to skip past and move past. Uh, because it is a lot more difficult in nature to deal with. Um, Probably also because chapter 8 is uh, the crux of, of Romans, right? It's the most beautiful chapter in the world, and it's this chapter that um, I just spent three weeks on. Chapter eight, because it's incredibly, it, it's an easy one to preach. It's a lot of, it's full of hope and it's full of love. And uh, I was joking with Zane last week. I was like, "Yeah, man, we'll, we'll let you take take over that last section of chapter eight. It's just, I'll I'll, I'll do nine, and you can take eight and stuff." But uh, but eight is this chapter where Paul comes in and he says, you know, God's going to work all things together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Obviously, God's definition of good, God's timing and everything there too. But he says this is a great promise. Like God's going to work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then he wraps up chapter eight and he says, hey, nothing's going to separate you from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord, not height, nor debt, nor powers, any other created thing, anything in the world is going to separate you from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so it's an incredible chapter. It's easy to preach. And it's one that we love. We cling to it. We put the plaque up on our wall. And chapter 9 is going to be Paul dealing with the elephant in the room and this reality that it seems like God's covenant chosen people, the Israelites, have been separated from him. And so it's going to deal with the tension of this whole thing. It seems like, okay, like, like, like God's elect and chosen, the Israelites, the people that God's, that, that God's called from Abraham and beyond that, right? He's, he's brought into being. He's, he's, uh, he's brought his promised Messiah through. He's going to say, like, like it seems like, okay, something separated for them from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why have they rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah from his lineage, Abraham's lineage, Israel's lineage came the Messiah, And if not that, like, why does it seem like God may be, which he's not, but it seems like he's stepping away from his promises towards Israel. Uh, On top of that, how are we supposed to understand what's taking place with Israel right here in light of what he just talked about in chapter eight, which is the sovereignty of God and his predestined purposes, which he talked about at the end of chapter eight. How are we supposed to deal with some of those tensions? And so like this is a chapter that's going to spark, again, a lot of debate, a lot of articles. I mean, people divide over this quite a bit because this is going to deal with the paradox of responsibility, which we talked about a lot in the past, which is, that, which is essentially the, the theological tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility uh, to believe in him and to choose and to share the gospel and to obey and things like that. And it's, the, it's that tension there. And the, the, the problem with this passage, not really the problem, but I'd say maybe the frustrating part about a passage like this is it's not fully going to be resolved for us, right? And so Paul's going to even say it right here in this text. You heard it read just a little bit ago. Paul's going to come to a point and is dealing with some of these tensions. He's going to say, okay, look, at some point in time, like, we've got to stop questioning the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, everything that he knows in eternity past. And we've got to understand, like, he's the potter. You and I are the clay, and he's going he's to kind of say there and be like, okay, enough is enough. It's time to stop questioning that. Like, he has the right to choose. He has the right to do what he wants to do. And in the very next breath, he's going to sit there and say, nevertheless, like, uh, um, the reason uh, G- the Israel is in the place that they are, it's not because of God's predetermined plan, but he's going to say, no, 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 um, they had no faith and they pursued salvation or righteousness on the basis of their works. And so in the same context, he's going to say, no, 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 okay, they, they, they didn't believe they, they, they didn't believe the gospel. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then he goes on in chapter 10, and this is a huge evangelistic crusade, kind of this reminder to the church of Jews and Gentiles here that, hey, if you, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You will be saved. And he goes, he says, everyone who believes in him, everyone will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He bestows riches on all who call upon him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this is one of these conversations that is going to lead to a number of different strong reactions. On the one hand, some people are going to take it and they're going to kind of be in the, the frozen chosen, if you may have heard it before in the past. And they're going to kind of, you know, remain in this class that kind of says, you know what, God's totally in control. I'm out of it. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to enjoy the ride. He's chosen what he wills, no one can resist his will, and so just kind of a frozen chosen kind of a thing. Won't share the gospel, won't take a whole lot of responsibility, and we're going to kind of sit in that camp. Other people are going to go all responsibility, very very little sovereignty, very little predestined purposes of God, anything like that. And they're going to take all the responsibility upon themselves, much like second great awakening time. Some of those evangelists put so much pressure because they believed, hey, your soul is dependent upon my persuasive abilities in this moment right? And so they live with fear and anxiety all the time. Like, I have to convert the world. It's all up to me and with the things that I can say and if I can get the argument right and everything like that. Others of us are going to listen to this talk, topic and, and some of these, these, um, these issues that are brought up here, and we're going to have uh, analysis paralysis or something like that. We're going to be like, okay, thinking about the sovereignty of God and the mind of God and the will of God and the eternity past and how that plays out in eternity future, uh, it's just going to explode my mind, Right? And so Moses is going to remind us in Deuteronomy 29, 29, he's going to say this, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. In other words, like there are some things that we're going to understand and only understand on the other side of glory. And there are some things that are given to us right here and right now for us to know and for us to do. And my hope and my prayer is that we will be able to step into this paradox of responsibility and this realization that, you know what, he lifts up both of these things. The sovereignty of God is absolutely there. He makes it loud and clear at the end of chapter 8. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified and declared righteous. And those who he justified, he will also glorify. And at the exact same time, there is a responsibility given to you and I to believe, and then to go into the world and to make Him known so that other people can also then believe. And that we would walk into the mysteries of God and we would understand that there is nothing more practical than when you and I take both of these things in context and we lift them up and we say it's both and, it is not either or. He knows exactly what he's doing in the way that he talks to us, in the way that he gives us responsibility today, and in the way that he describes the sovereignty of God working at the exact same time. And so I want to go through this text and, uh, and bring us there. And I think you're going to see how practical this thing plays out here in the end. But uh, as we go through this chapter, it actually lines out pretty easy for us, although the subject matter is pretty complex. Um, there's three different questions that he 's going to deal with as we as we move through this chapter. Um, the first question is really about god 's faithfulness in this entire matter right and the big question here is okay is God actually faithful to his promises concerning the Jews specifically here is God being faithful to his promises we 're going to see that in verse six these were god 's covenant people they don 't seem to be anymore with him anymore they don 't seem to be with him anymore which They are in some ways, but um, he's going to deal with that one first. The second question is, okay, is God unfair? Is he being unjust? And we're going to see that in verse 14. And then, of course, the third one is, okay, is God good? Is he good and is it right for him to hold us accountable when we're talking about things like predestination and choice and and the sovereignty of God and things like that? And so he's going to deal with that in verse 19. He begins this entire chapter much like a lament psalm. And this is interesting about what Paul does because you see the heart of Paul come out as he is lamenting and he's weeping on behalf of his kinsmen uh, the nation of Israel he is Jewish right and so he is lamenting on behalf of his on behalf of his people and so he begins this way and he says I promise you I'm not lying I have great sorrow an unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my fellow kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, he's identifying with the pain of his people and what he's seeing in the world right there. He's weeping and he's lamenting on their behalf. And he's saying, no, 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 I'm lamenting so deeply. I wish I could be cut off if that meant that all of Israel would be saved. And so he goes into it. He says, they had every single privilege in the world. Like the people of God, these were the, the Israelites, they had every privilege in the world. And he talks about like, they had the covenant of God. They had the promise of God, which God came to, to Abraham and he said, I'm going to promise you land, people, and blessing. I said, I'm going to promise you land, people, and blessing. I'm going to be in relationship with you. Through you, the promise of Messiah will come. There will be br- blessing brought to the entirety of the world. These are the promises of God. And he said, this is, these are the covenant people of God. They had every privilege in the world. They had the law. God gave them the law, which not only shows them how they were designed to flourish, but also reveals to them the holiness of God, and it reveals to them insight into the character of God, and they had that. They had the temple. They had the worship practices that were there. They had the prophets who were telling them how to live and when to repent, and they were telling them all about the upcoming Messiah who was also going to come from their line. They had every privilege in the world, and yet he's lamenting because they still miss Jesus as the Messiah. Every privilege in the world, and they still missed Jesus as the Messiah. And granted, like some people did believe, right? This is, we know that the, the, the first century church in Rome, it is Jewish and Gentile believers. There are Messianic Jews, people from the ethnic line of Christ, right? And they come in and they do believe. And so we do know that there is that. But nationally speaking, there's been a rejection of the Messiah. And so he comes in and he understands people are going to be going, okay, does this mean that God was the one who was unfaithful in this whole thing? Does this mean that God is the one who is unfaithful? Like, what what happened? to like, the promises of God toward Israel, did they fail? And so Paul answers this, and he goes, no, because the promises of God, he never promised that ethnicity would ever be able to save you. The promises of God didn't fail because he never promised that you being Jewish was the thing that it took in order for you to be saved. He never promised that your ethnicity would actually save you. This is what he says in verse 6. He says, for not all who are descendants of Israel belong to Israel. Not all of his offspring are really children of Abraham. In other words, like from the beginning, when God chose Israel to be his covenant people, there was always a distinction between his ethnic choosing for the purposes of God and individual saving faith. This is what Tony Evans talks about. And he says, there was always a spiritual Israel inside of the physical one. Right? There was always a spiritual Israel inside of the physical one. Later on, I love how he talks about it. He says, there are no grandchildren in the kingdom of heaven. There's only children of, he- there's only children of God. There's only grandchildren. Uh, in other words, when John says, as many as have received him, to them he's given the right to be called children of God. It doesn't matter if you're 97 or you're seven years old. You placed your faith in Christ. You are a child of God. You are brothers and sisters in the kingdom of heaven. You know, like, there are no grandchildren. You're not, you're not there because of your parents' parents' faith or your parents' faith or anything like that. That's what he's saying right here. Like, you're not there because of anybody else. Even today, we would say, hey, can't we talk about it a little different? We say, hey, there's a physical church that you may go to, which isn't fully true or anything, but this is how we talk about it. There's a physical church that you can go to. There's a true spiritual church, which if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to right? No one is saved. You are not a believer or a Christian necessarily because you walked into the doors of a church or anything like that. Like you're not saved because you've been born into a right Christian family, a good Christian family. You're not saved because you're born in the right country and among a lot of people that acknowledge, hey, I'm a Christian on 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 a little form or something like that. Like you're not saved on the basis of ethnicity or whatever family that you were born into or anything like that. This is what Paul talks about in chapter two, by the way. In chapter 2, he's saying, a real Jew is one who is one inwardly. They're inwardly Jewish, he says. Just as true circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Holy Spirit, not by observing the letter of the law. In other words, he's always making a a distinction between what is real and what is not real. And what Paul's saying is real here, it's got nothing to do with the family that you're born into, the nation that you're born into, the people group that you're born into, or even your ability to observe the letter of the law. Uh, What's real has everything to do with what's happening inside of here and what you do with the promises of God by faith, right? It was by faith, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, so it says. And so I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on this one. I think we understand, for the most part, right, that I think at least on an on, on a initial basis, we understand, hey, salvation is not on the basis of our ethnicity. However, I would say this. I would ask you this question. Have you assumed that you are fine simply because of the home in which you were raised? Have you assumed that you're fine simply because of the home in which you are raised or because you are born an American and we value, hey, you know, God, family, country, right? That kind of, that's kind of the motto, right? Or you were born in the right country. Have you assumed that you're fine simply because of the home in which you are born? And the reason I bring that up, when you engage with people a lot of times outside of the church or maybe in a lot of, uh, even sometimes in here, right, we talk and we say, How do, you know, what's my story? Well, I was born into a great Christian home. I, I, yeah, my parents believed they were great Christian people. They were great Christians. And so I had that as a background or something like that. And we kind of assume, hey, since that's how I was born, that's how I was raised to believe those things and stuff, we may be fine. And what Paul's saying right here, no, no, no. There's a difference between the home you're born into and saving faith, right? And, and, and I would ask you that question as we go throughout the rest of this message. I would ask you to say, like, what are you clinging to? Is your, is your great hope that your parents were saved? Like they were Christians and you were born into a great home, and a great family, and you're an American, and you check that box, right? Uh, is that your great hope, or is your hope, no, 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 I've, I'm resting totally and completely in the, in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as a substitute for me. Uh, is that where your hope is? Charles Wesley, I always share this story. The great evangelist, born in a Christian home, out there preaching the gospel, comes to a point in his adult life, and he realizes, in the preaching the gospel, I knew everything there is to know about Christianity except the God that I preached about, And in his adult life, in his years after the fact, he realized, like, I knew that God saved sinners. I just didn't know he saved me. And there's a distinction that he's making, which is the same distinction that Paul is making right here. And I would ask you that before we continue much further to say, where is your hope today? Is your hope in your nationality? Is your hope in your political party? Is your hope in the home home that you were born into? Is it in your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith? Or is it in the Lord Jesus Christ as a substitute for my sins? He is the one who's redeemed me. Coming to him by faith, the Bible is going to be very clear. It is by faith, Abraham's faith that was credited to him as righteousness. And so that's the first one. No, no, no. Is God unfaithful to his promises? No. He never promised anybody that you'd be saved on the basis of your ethnicity. And so that's the first question. The second question that he's going to deal with is essentially this. It's about the fairness of God's election. Okay, is God just? Is he fair in the way that he elects? And he brings up this language here in the text. But the reason he asks this question is because he's just talked about the children of promise in verse eight, meaning Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. He's talking about the children of the promise, the promise given to Abraham. I'm gonna give you land, people, and blessing. You'll become a great father of many nations. Through your lineage will come the Messiah. And that from Abraham comes Isaac, who is the lineage of the the blessing here, over Ishmael. It's according to the promise. And then it's Jacob over Esau, the younger over the older, which goes counter-cultural to the way things always worked. But we read about it in verse 11. He says this, he says, He does it simply because of the one who calls. Why would he elect, why would he call Jacob over Esau and Isaac over Ishmael, when culturally speaking, it should be the other way around? And what he says here is that God chooses not on the basis of works, not on the basis of foreknowledge knowing hey, you are good and bad. He's not he's not he's not calling on that basis or anything like that. But he says hey, it's simply because of the one who calls, verse 11. Though neither of them were yet born, meaning Esau and Jacob here, and though neither had done any bad or good, in order that God's purpose of election may continue, not because of works, in order to continue the trend that, hey, no one in the history of the world will ever be saved on the basis of their works, but simply because of the one who calls. This is what he wants to do. In other words, that's what he's saying. Like, Jacob was chosen to continue the line simply because that's what God, in his infinite wisdom, decided to do. In his sovereignty, in the depth of God's wisdom, he decided that this would play out best for his own glory and for the good of man. And so he tells Rebecca this, right? Rebekah, um, and, and it says uh, Jacob and Esau's mother, Isaac's wife, the older is going to serve the younger. He tells, him this is gonna, tells her, this is what's going to take place. And then he says this, very problematic. Um, it, it sounds really, really terrible. As, in, as it is written in verse 13, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And that's what he says there in verse 13. It sounds awful. It's actually a reference to Malachi 1.3. And he's talking about how the Edomites, who are the evil, wicked descendants of Esau, this is a thousand years, uh, So after, actually longer than that, um, after the promises came to Jacob and Esau, he's talking about how the, the younger will serve, or the older will serve the younger. And he's showing us how that plays out. And the Edomites, Esau's descendants, did in fact for the longest time, they served uh, the nation of Israel, Jacob's descendants right there. And he's showing this contrast between where God's favor was and where God's favor was not. And so again, the question comes up because that's in prophetic history right there, that those words are there. The question's going to come up in the mind of the reader and our audience. They're going to be saying, okay, is it fair um, that God would choose Jacob over Esau? Is it fair that he would elect to continue his blessings through that line or anything like that? Is it unfair for God to do that? And so Paul answers that and he says, no, it's not unfair for God to do that. By no means, he says in verse 14, For he says to Moses, he says, I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And other like what's fair is is that he doesn't give mercy to anybody. Like you want to talk about fair. um, Compassion and mercy has nothing to do with what's fair. Like, Like you want fair. Like what's fair is to let us go and that God would not intervene at all. Like, what's fair is that he would leave us into our sin and the inevitable destruction that would come from it all. What's fair is what we see play out in chapter 1 of Romans. Paul's already dealt with a lot of stuff in the exact same letter, so we have a little bit of context, but he's saying, like, what's fair is, uh, he talks about this in chapter 1, but he says, you want to know what the problem uh, all throughout the world is? It's that universally, humanity has suppressed the truth about God, we've elevated ourselves, and we've chosen to worship a thousand other little g-gods rather than the one true God who spoke everything into existence. And so we remember this in chapter 1. He's describing the fallout of sin in the world, right? And he says this. He says, therefore, as a result of this fallout, he says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Again, verse 26, he gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God anymore, God gave them up to a debased mind in order to do the things which ought not be done. In other words, the first wave of God's wrath or judgment is that sometimes he chooses not to intervene into a situation and to give us the thing or to help us let us do the thing that ultimately we want to do. This is how he operates sometimes is that sometimes he does give us what's fair. He gives us the thing that we've chosen to do, that we want to do, and he lets us go, and he gives us up to go and to do the things that we ought not do. That's what's fair. What's fair is what follows and what we read about at the end of chapter 1, where it says, they were filled with every manner of unrighteousness, and the world in which this creates. Evil, covetousness, malice, he says. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, they're slanders, haters of God, insolent. Haughty, boastful, inventors of e- evil, disobedient to parents. Right, kids, you can pay attention. <laughs> like, I love that that one's thrown in there too. Ruthless, he says, faithless, foolish, heartless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. This is what's fair. That's what our sin has earned. That's what our rebellion and rejection against God has earned. Though they practice such things and they know that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. In other words, like what's fair is to live in the fruit of a world where we always, are, or where we always do what we want to do. Praise God Almighty, church. God doesn't always give us what's fair. right? Praise God Almighty that the way that he operates with you and I when it comes to salvation is on the basis of his mercy and not on the basis of what's fair or what we are due or what, we, what, what we've chosen in and of our own, uh, of our own self. Like, this is what he says. Like, is it unfair to give somebody mercy? No. The very nature of mercy is that he gives us the thing that we don't deserve. It's the very definition of mercy. Like, no one's obligated to give mercy. It's the definition. Like, mercy is a gift of favor that, again, by definition, you don't deserve. John Stott puts it like this. Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy. That may seem backward to us, but it's not. Paul is indicating that the question itself, it's misconceived because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not by giving us what we deserve, but by giving us mercy. And so this is the argument of of, of the second question right here. Like if, If God doesn't owe anyone mercy, which he does not, like you can't say that he's unfair or that he's unjust when he chooses to give mercy and he chooses to give compassion freely away. And so this is going to lead into the third question here in this text. And I'll just be straight up with, I think this is probably the most complicated one here in this section, but he he gets on and he's like, okay, so if God is not unfaithful because he's never promised that ethnicity would save, uh, if God's not unjust or unfair because uh, he operates with us on the basis of mercy and compassion, then okay, then, then is he good, Is he good, and is it right for him to hold us accountable or to hold us responsible? Again, when we're talking about things like choosing and predestination and the foreknowledge of God and things of that nature. Like, why does he still find fault in verse 19? Why does he still hold us responsible for who can resist his will is the question that he asks. And it's a fascinating question because um, at this point in time, all throughout his letter, it seems like he's already made it really clear, like, we've all resisted his will. Right? It it seems like he's made his point already to the point like, like all of humanity has resisted the will of God. Like, this is what we do. Uh, Romans chapter one, all of us have suppressed the truth and elevated ourselves. Like all of us have done that. Like there's none who are righteous, chapter three, not even one person. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah is gonna say each of us like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall totally and completely upon him. Point of the matter is like we've all resisted the will of God. I mean, you think about the way that the word of God talks about God's will. I mean, think about some of the ways that he talks about it. Matthew chapter six, Jesus in the uh, the Lord's Prayer is going to be teaching us how to pray, and he's going to teach us to pray like this. He's going to say, "Thy kingdom come." thy will be done on earth right now as it already is in heaven. In other words, there's a distinction between God's perfect will, which is already being accomplished in glory, in heavenlies, and and what's actually taking place today. There's a difference between his perfect will in the Garden of Eden and his permissive will after chapter three when sin comes and enters into the picture right here. In other words, he acknowledges like we are able to resist the will of God. We're able to run from him. In fact, we're incredibly good at doing so. 1 Timothy chapter 2, you want to know what the will of God is? He's going to say, God desires all people to be saved. You want to know what the will of God is? God desires, here it is, he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Yet the reality is not all people are saved. Like, there's a, there's a perfect will of God, what he wants over here, and the permissive will of what comes and plays out, because we have an ability to run from him. Like, this is the whole thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Yet, here we are, people still engaging, we still engaging in sexual immorality. Nevertheless, it is against the will of God. 1 Peter two fifteen it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Nevertheless, it still continues and it still persists, does it not not um, Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, here he says, equip you, not force you, not pull the strings of the puppet master or anything like that, but may the God of peace equip you with everything good for accomplishing His will. It's the same thing that he's talking about with Pharaoh here in verse 17. Paul's going to talk about how God hardened Pharaoh uh, in order to show off his power, that his name may be proclaimed around the entire world. And it's this, again, this tense text where it talks about, okay, um, I'm going to give mercy to those who I show mercy. I'll harden whomever I harden. And, and you look at that and you're kind of like, Whoa, what? But we see the exact same thing play out in Pharaoh's story. Like he didn't harden him as an infant here. We read about it in Exodus chapter 8 that Pharaoh was hardened in his heart that time and time again, uh, you remember the whole scene. Moses comes before Pharaoh and says, a demand, uh, let my people go, 10 plagues and the whole deal. Here's what it says in chapter 8. It says, But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let my people go. Chapter 9, he says the same thing. When, When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail, the thunder, had ceased, he sinned yet again, and he hardened his own heart, he and his servants. Five different times it talks about how Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God predicted it was going to happen, told Moses it was going to happen. Pharaoh hardened his own heart five different times before God comes in and hardens it once and for all. Why did he harden it once and for all? That he could show off his power, here it is, in freeing an enslaved nation in setting in uh, setting an enslaved people totally and completely free so that they would know him so that they would love him so that they would trust him and walk with him all the days of of, of their life church is he good he's absolutely good like he's absolutely good is is he fair no he's not fair he's merciful which is so much better than being fair Like in Matthew 23, this is just after Palm Sunday. This is just after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we just waved the the palm branches about. Like Jesus stands outside of Jerusalem and knowing what's ahead, knowing the cross that he's about to bear, knowing the rejection of his people, the Israelites, he weeps and he laments for Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he knows it's going to happen. And he's still, he's still compelled to move towards the cross. But he weeps on behalf of his people. And he says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you weren't willing. You didn't want it. He's not sitting there going, like, I I wanted to gather as a hen with their chicks, but I didn't will for that to happen in eternity past. No, no, no. He's sitting there going, you didn't want this. You weren't willing to come with me. I wanted us to gather. I wanted us to have fellowship and harmony. Like, I wanted to bless you tremendously, but I've I've given you a will and you chose, you, you, you were not willing to come with me. Point of the matter, church, is we have a responsibility to believe and God has given us that responsibility in the middle of all of this talk about his sovereignty, which is absolutely true. The foreknowledge and predetermined plans of God, in the middle of that mystery, he has still given us a responsibility to believe. It's why not all of Israel is really Israel, and it's why God has to operate with us on the basis of his mercy, to give us the things that we don't actually deserve, or the things that we, yeah, to give us the things we don't actually deserve. And so at this point, like Paul, it seems like he's made that point clear all throughout his letter to the church in Rome. And so he goes, listen, at some point in time, church, we have to stop questioning the goodness and the wisdom of God. Like at some point in time, you've got to stop in that whole thing and, in, and all the papers and all the questions. And, and we've got to stop thinking that, hey, I'm more merciful than God. I'm wiser than God. If I were in charge, I'd do it better that somehow he's not merciful in all of his ways. I mean, think about the absurdity of that. Like we drive down 635, someone cuts us off in traffic, and we want to kill their family. Yet, like all of humanity has rebelled against God and rejected him and sin. And what does God do? He sends his one and only son to lay down his life so that we can live now and for all of eternity with him. Like he is beyond merciful. We can't even fathom the depths of his mercy, the, the infinite wisdom of God. We can't even think about that. That's what he's saying. He is the potter, church. We are the clay. At some point in time, we've got to back off that and sit in the mystery of God and say, you know what, he can figure this thing out. Like he knows and I trust his wisdom and I trust his infinite nature. I trust his mercy and I trust his goodness. He's the one who spoke and the universe came into being. He's the one who created the sun, the moon, and the stars. I was reading this article this past week and this pastor was talking about how the sun is actually 27 million degrees hot. That's how hot the sun is. 27 million degrees. And God spoke and the sun came into existence. Can you imagine like 27 million degrees? Like I get the flu, I can come up with probably 104 degrees myself. Maybe 105 on a really, really bad day, something like that. I light myself on fire. could probably get up to 250. God speaks and breathes into existence a self-sustaining universe. Like, where a ball of fire, 27 million degrees, is at the center of this entire thing. It's all connected by this gravitational pull and constancy that is absolutely perfect. None of us are burned up in the process. Like, this is the majesty of God. It's like a child questioning their father on the road, being like, hey, Dad, I don't think you know the way to New York. I don't think you know the way right on, on the way home. I don't think you're driving the right way. Like, how many times did Caleb ask me that when he was four years old? He's like, I don't think you know where you're going. I'm like, Caleb, you're four. Yeah, you don't know anything. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I promise you, I know, like, the, the amount of difference between the wisdom of me, uh, even though I went to A&M, and my, and my four-year-old son, like, I, like, the amount of difference between like, and, and us and God, it's just infinite in nature. And what Paul's saying is that at some point in time, we can lay down, and we can sit there and say, I, you're the potter, I'm the clay here. Like, w- will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And does, it, does that even make sense? Does the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Of course he does. He has the right to do what he pleases here. It doesn't mean that he destines people for hell. It doesn't mean that he gives people no hope. It simply means that he has the right to use Moses one way. He has the right to use Pharaoh another way over here. And so he continues in this and he says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, what if he's endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, he says, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Keep in mind, it's a mixed church, Jewish and Gentile believers, right here. And what he's saying, what if God, in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite mercy, has chosen to endure with great patience? Our rebellion against him, our rejection of him, the unbelieving Israelites, like we read about that all throughout the captivities, all throughout the Old Testament, right? What if God in his patience chose to endure all of that and continue in all of that? Like what if he did all of that because there would be even greater opportunity for the Gentiles, you and me, people outside of the ethnic tribe of Israel here. What if there would be more opportunity for you and me to receive the beauty of God's grace and we would become vessels of mercy in time? And so he goes like, church, this is the whole point of Hosea's story. He quotes Hosea right next. He says, this is the whole point of Hosea's prophecy. When when Hosea said, when God said through the prophet Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. The Gentiles who are not called my people at that point in time, they will be called my people. And she who was not beloved, I will call beloved And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And I love that he takes us to Hosea here because this is the story. Like The whole point of Hosea's story is that God moves toward you and me totally and completely on the basis of his mercy. It's the it's whole reason, the entirety of Hosea's prophetic ministry. You remember this story. It's absolutely absurd and crazy, and you kind of read it once your kids get after 13 or something like that, but uh, it's this beautiful story of God needing to show people how, de- how deep and how wide his love and his mercy actually extends. And so he calls Hosea, this mighty man of God, this prophet of God, and he says, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. And you remember this? Like Hosea's going, well, that's not what we do, God. That doesn't make any... Like, uh, people know me as a prophet, right? I, and he's like, no, no, no. I need you to do, I want you to do this. Go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. Because like I, I, I need people to see, I, I need people to see and, and, and experience like what it's like to always and only be rejected by the people that you love. I, I need people to understand the depth of my wisdom, the depth of my love. Go and marry this prophet Gomer. And so it's exactly what he does. He marries her. She cheats and cheats and cheats. They have kids Finally, a little bit later on, she leaves and she runs from the home and he thinks that it's all over with years later, and God comes to Hosea and He says, No, 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 Hosea, it's not done with. I want you to go and I want you to find her, and I want you to bring her home. And he's going, What? This doesn't make any sense. And so he goes and he does the exact same thing. He goes and he finds her on a slave block. And he sees her on a slave block. And and Hosea in his shame sees his wife in the middle of her shame. And he goes and and he goes and he pays the price in order to bring her back home. And at this point in the story, you're sitting there going like, "What? Why in the world is he paying a price for his bride? He like, like, she shouldn't be paying anything. Like, they're already married." But the, the, this is the story of God. This is the depth of His mercy. The psalmist is going to say, "The earth is the Lord's and all it contains; the world and everyone who dwells in it." In other words, like we too, like we were already His. We were already His. But just like Gomer, the choice that we made was to run from God and the price of our running with death and separation from him. But God in his infinite love and in his infinite mercy sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived the sinless life and he died the sinner's death because that was the price that that it took in order to bring us back home. And the beauty of Hosea's story, like all Gomer had to do at that point in time was receive that free gift of mercy. She's sitting there and had no reason to be beloved by Hosea. But Hosea comes and and, and is a representative of God. Hosea's name actually means salvation. Gomer's name actually means completeness, meaning she was completely gone. She was completely dead in her sin. And Jesus, Hosea, uh, Yeshua, comes to her and offers salvation, this gift of mercy. All she has to do is receive it. She's not sitting there going, okay, God, am I I predestined? How does this work out in the sovereign plans of God? There's there's an invitation of mercy right here. And as she knows it, she simply has to say, yes, I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Church, this is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope of this story. This is the hope of the entirety of Scripture is that God takes vessels of dishonor and he turns them into vessels of mercy. He extends his mercy, he extends his grace, and he takes vessels of dishonor. Church, which of us are not that testimony? Like, isn't this your story? Like, how many of you can sit there and say, yeah, the first half of my life, whatever that number of years was, like, I was living for dishonor. There was nothing honorable in me. I was running from him. This is the story of scripture. There's none of us who are righteous. And we all have varying degrees, however that plays out and stuff. But which of us can sit there and say, no, 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 I didn't even need his grace. Like, this is us. Vessels of dishonor, running from God. And in the middle of that place, God fixed his love and his mercy upon you and made you this invitation that you simply needed to receive. Like, church, this is a story. Mary Magdalene, the great herald of the gospel that we're going to celebrate next week, of uh, the resurrection comes, and she's sharing the, the beautiful truth that the tomb is empty, right? What do we know about her story? Seven demons in her past. Demon-possessed woman, all the shame that that would bring. And yet God fixed his love upon her. Jesus came and touched her, cleansed her of that addiction, set her free. She's the first herald of the resurrected Christ on Resurrection Easter Sunday right there. Like this is what he does. Vessels of dishonor turned into vessels of mercy. Paul knows this. This is Paul's story. He's the chief among all sinners he describes himself, is he not? Like the the angry, hateful, before his time with Christ, he wanted Christians dead. He was actually persecuting them, physically assaulting them, trying to have them killed vessels of dishonor. God met him on the road to Damascus. Jesus made himself known, changed his life completely. Church, this is what he does. He pursues us. When we were running from him, God chased after us, made us turn around, and invited us into relationship with him through an extension of his mercy. Church, this is what God does. Like, while I was lost and dead in my sins, he came after me. So you better believe I'm going to sing about his sovereignty. All day long, We're going to sit there and say, my God is sovereign. He's not just responding to my choices. He has this amazing plan. He has this incredible ability to exist outside of time, in the matters of eternity, speak into the here and now. And he is able to do the thing that I cannot do, that I was not even wanting to do in and of my own flesh. Like I was running from him. He came chasing after me. That's how we know that God is going to work all things together for good to those who love him. Like, that's what he's been doing from the very beginning. Those who he foreknew, he predestined. Those who he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. In other words, what he began in you, you can take it to the bank. He is going to finish it in you as well. You better believe. We're going to sing all day long about the sovereignty of God. But here it is, church. Like, I am also going to weep and I'm going to preach because he has given us a responsibility to believe. do, Do not miss... That This entire section is Paul lamenting the lostness of his people, weeping for them. Say, God, I would give them my life, I would give my soul that they could be saved. And he is weeping because they've rejected the Messiah. He's lamenting. He's, like have, he says, like, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that my kinsmen would be saved. I wish that I could be cursed for their sake. Chapter ten, the bottom end of this insane conversation. And brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is that they would be saved. Church, like, is there weeping for the world anymore? Do you lament over the brokenness in the world and the, the things that you see? Does it bring you to tears anymore? Like, I know that this stirs up anger, and I know it stirs up debates. And I know that there's, I know that there's, there's all this kind of like anguish and I know that there's all these different things, like there's outrage and stuff. Like does it bring up weeping and lamenting for the brokenness of the world? Like is there a willingness to cross the other side with the message of God's truth and mercy is there a willingness to go to them? Like the reason, like, look why look why, they're, look why they're not saved. He says in verse 32, because they didn't pursue God's righteousness by faith, but as if it were by works. This is why they weren't saved. It's not because God said, he doesn't say that right here at this particular point in time. It doesn't say it's because I predetermined that or anything like that. He says, because they didn't pursue God's righteousness by faith, as if it were based on works. And he says, here's the irony of it all. Verse 30, what should we say then? The Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it? That's weird. They didn't even want righteousness, and they retained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, they didn't even succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is Jesus and Jesus coming and saying, I'm giving you mercy. I'm not giving you a works-based righteousness that you can cling to and earn yourself. I'm giving you mercy. You don't get to earn it. You don't get to put the badge on your chest saying I'm better than everybody else. No, no, no. you got to lay down like Gomer and you got to acknowledge that you're Gomer and you got to acknowledge the place that you're in and simply receive it by faith. Churches are lamenting and as they're weeping over the lostness of the world and, and our brokenness, which, which made Jesus go to the cross. The same sin that you're seeing out there is the same sin that's in me that caused him to come and have to die in the first place. Church, do we lament over that? This whole thing in the mystery of God, it makes Paul weep and it makes him preach. Chapter 10 is this beautiful thing and he comes again and he goes, I need you to know this. Like if you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord. You believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. I don't care if you're Jewish. I don't care if you're from Africa, if you're from China, if you're from Russia, if you're from Brazil, if you're from America. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your family background is. I don't care what your mom believed, your grandma believed. I don't care any of those things. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. You believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so he pleads with the church to get out of their seat and to go. There is no frozen chosen, even in the sovereignty of God. He says, church, get up and go. Go outside these walls, because we have a responsibility to believe, lest we are friends and our family and the people around us be like unbelieving Israel. Get out of here and go. Share the gospel. How will anyone call on him who hasn't believed? How will they believe if they've never heard? How will they hear if no one preaches and tells them? How would they preach unless they're sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who go and bring good news. I'm telling you, church, there's nothing more practical than embracing the paradox of responsibility. I sing because he's sovereign. When I was running from him, he didn't give me what I deserved. He came chasing after me. He knew and he moved towards us with mercy and with compassion. But I weep And keep preaching day by day by day because we have been given a responsibility to receive this hope of mercy. Just like Gomer did in recognition, I ran from him. Yes, I will come home with you. The reality is some may be listening today. Maybe you're clinging to your family's faith and you've never understood Jesus died for you. Some of you online, you're tuning in and you've never done that. Jesus died for you. He moved towards you. And you have the opportunity to receive this free gift of mercy. But you have to be like Gomer. You've got to acknowledge, yeah, I've run from him. I've rebelled against him. That's what I deserve. I deserve to have, I deserve to have no intervention whatsoever. God chose not to do that. He chose to move towards you and to extend mercy and grace And the opportunity before you today who are clinging to anything other than that is to say yes. Jesus, I know that you are the Son of God. I believe that you are the promised Messiah. I believe that you died upon that cross to forgive me of my sins. And I believe you walked out of that tomb three days later proving you are the Son of God. You have power over sin and death. I receive you today by faith. The Bible says if you have that faith, which is much just like Abraham, looking at the promises of God, saying, I believe it, I believe it, that faith will be credited to you as righteousness. You will begin life with him now and for all eternity. And for you, some of you today, that is the opportunity before you, that you would receive him by faith, that you wouldn't be like unbelieving Israel or anybody else for that matter on the outside looking in, that you would say, yes, I see what you've done for me and I cling to it by faith. For everybody else inside the church that has already made that profession, may we be reminded that you have been sent into this world. May we weep and may we preach that people may believe all for the praise and for the glory of his name. Father God we love you Lord Jesus We praise you and we thank you Because you took all the initiative with us There was nothing Good in us in and of our own selves And yet You chose patience and Endurance Vessels of wrath You endured Lord God to turn us into Vessels of mercy Father we say praise be to God Through your son Jesus Christ God may this singing never end May it never end God May your soul never grow tired. God, we praise you. We thank you this day for the person who's never believed. God, would you bring to them faith, God? Would you let them see the offer of mercy that is before them today? Let them cling to it by faith that they could, be, they could, have, that they could have it credited to them as righteousness, Father. Would you come and would you do that in us today? God, we give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. And we simply say thank you. it's so in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray, amen. And amen.